This morning I'll be reading from Genesis 50, verses 15 through 20. When Joseph's brothers said that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph, saying, Your father gave us this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin, because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph went when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for I am in the place of God. And for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive, as they are today. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Thank you, Katie. Lee Strobel wrote one of his apologetics books uh, several years ago. And before he did, he surveyed um, quite a cross-section of American adults. And he said this. He said, if you could ask God only one question and you knew he would give you the answer, what would you ask? And without fail, the top question was this, if, if I could sit in front of God and know that he's gonna answer me and give me the answer, I would ask him, why is there pain and suffering in the world? It's the top question for everyone, for a few reasons. First, it's biblical. We start out in the Bible with perfection, and only three chapters in, we've already done away with perfection, and all of a sudden there is suffering present. And from there on, it's a constant tension in the Bible, even till we get to the very end where God is in heaven and his martyred saints in chapter six are saying, oh Lord, holy and true, how long before you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? See, the whole Bible is uh, a message that deals with this idea of suffering and when will it be righted? And that's the same question as asking God, why is there pain and suffering in the first place? It's a crucial question because it's biblical. Two, it's a crucial question because it's universal. It really doesn't matter what you believe. You have to answer the question, why suffering and why evil exists? And how does your worldview hold up? If you take God out of the picture, then you're only left with a few uh, options. Uh, New Age says to just deny um, evil and suffering, just pretend that it doesn't exist. Hinduism says roll with it and this idea of karma. Atheism says, well, we'll just use it. We'll use evil and suffering to prove that God can't exist. But Christianity comes along and says, no, 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 it's real enough that God himself had to come down and deal with it. And so, no matter what your worldview is, you have to answer for evil and suffering. Just removing God from the picture does not solve your, your problem of evil and pain in the world. It just makes it harder to explain. Third, probably the most pressing reason today we have to ask this question, we have to deal with this question, is that it's personal. It's not just biblical, universal, it's personal. There is not anybody in here that hasn't dealt with loss. It is more than theory, more than philosophy. We all feel this one deeply because we've all lost and suffered. If you haven't, it just means that you haven't lived long enough. You just need to live a little more and it will happen. 
It's a little girl in a grade school who dies of leukemia right after all of the neighborhood kids had gone out of their way and raised thousands of dollars because the family didn't have insurance. Uh, They raised this money so that she could have a bone marrow transplant. But by by the time they raised all the money, she uh, was too weak to receive the bone marrow transplant and she died. And all of the children who went to all of that trouble say, why? Why did that happen? It's a little boy who's sitting at his table in the city and a stray bullet comes through the wall and he's sitting at his table by a Christmas tree with presents underneath. And we we look at that in that living room and we say, why? Why him? Why him? Or it's the man who some years ago backs his car out of the garage and he runs over his five-year-old girl. He didn't know she was there. And the girl, after being run over, jumps up for a moment, runs around saying, Daddy, Daddy, why? And then collapses and dies. And that's where we are, right? We are saying to God, the Father of the universe, Daddy, why? Why all of this? If you're so good, then why do you allow the suffering on the earth? And if you're so powerful, why don't you stop all the suffering on the earth? That's the problem. How can we worship a God who claims to be loving but allows all of this? John Stott says it this way, the fact of suffering undoubtedly constitutes the single greatest challenge to Christianity. So I wanna give you two ideas today. First, why suffering should point us to God rather than point us away from the idea of God. And then number two, why suffering should unite us to God rather than be the excuse that drives us away from him. Because that's the common script. That's what we've heard. That's, we've heard the line, it goes something like this. I don't wanna have anything to do with God because I can't believe that a loving God would ever, and then fill in the blank with whatever the situation is. That's the line we're used to hearing. Maybe that's the line that some of us have even used along the way. But I think here's what we'll find. I hope we find this at the end of the sermon, that Christianity's Christianity's explanation of suffering is the most satisfying that there is. Why suffering should point us to God. For a few minutes, uh, I wanna give you just three quick philosophical ideas. And again, we're just scratching the surface here on this subject today. Uh, As always, I will give a bibliography. I'll attach it to the podcast uh, so that when the podcast is up on the website, uh, you can look and there'll be a whole bunch of different resources. And I would challenge you to take one of those resources and just begin to study uh, further this idea of evil and suffering and how Christianity uh, has to speak into it. But why suffering should point us to God? Number one, because we know it. We know suffering. We know what it is. And we know instinctively that it shouldn't be a part of this life. That's what's inherent in the question. When we ask, why is there pain and suffering in the world? There's an assumption that we all categorically make and believe. And the assumption is this, that suffering shouldn't be a part of life. It shouldn't exist. Even non-believers will agree that on some level that categorical evil exists. Maybe an example of that is that everyone 
no matter where they live, no matter when they live, would probably agree that killing children is universally categorically wrong. No sane person would probably disagree with that, okay? And when we agree on those kind of issues, then we sense that there is an inherent moral order to the universe. There's a way that things are supposed to be, and we all kind of agree on that automatically. We don't have to persuade anybody. And, and when we say that we are appealing to that kind of moral order, then we're saying that a universal sense of right and wrong exists. Now, here's the problem. If you say that there's no God, where does that idea originate from? Where does it come from? Who gets to say what's right or wrong? And how do we collectively come up with this idea on a universal level that human life is important and it's valued and should be protected instead of disposed of? How how is that possible? C.S. Lewis explained it this way. The only way to tell if a line is crooked is if you know what a straight line is. And that's where we are with this problem. When we complain about evil in the world, we're complaining about a crooked line. And it affirms at the very same time as we're complaining about the crooked line, it affirms that there is a straight line that exists, that there is a standard where no percentage of evil should exist, and that's what we're all shooting for. By complaining about the crooked line, we are affirming the straight one. Dinesh D'Souza puts it very well. He says, if we are purely material beings, then we should no more object to mass murder than a river river objects to drying up in a drought. Nevertheless, we are not like rivers. We know that evil is real. We know that it is wrong. But if evil is real, then good must be real as well. How else would we know the difference between the two? Our ability to distinguish between good and evil and to recognize these as real means that there is a moral standard in the universe that provides the basis for this distinction. And what is the source of that moral standard if not God? And so moral categories should not exist if there's a world without God, but they do. You cannot have a moral uh, law that appeals on a universal scale without a moral law giver to give it. And the fact that we know suffering and we understand instinctively that it does not belong in our life points us to God. In 1997, Melissa Drexler was attending her high school prom as an 18-year-old senior. She was pregnant. And during the dance, she went to the bathroom and she gave birth to her baby. She cut the umbilical cord, she strangled the baby to death, and she threw it in a garage, in a garbage can. She then went back out to the dance floor and danced with her friends. Now that story became news and an evolutionary uh, Darwinian guy named Pinker wrote an article for the New York Times and he called, the article was entitled, Why They Kill Their Newborns. And in the article, he reassured everyone that you just have to understand that we are all descendants of women who have had to make these kind of difficult decisions so that they could go on later and become grandmothers in an unforgiving world. So what, at the end of the day, we've just inherited this brain circuitry that leads to these kind of decisions. And at least Pinker was being honest about his worldview. 
If we are the products of evolutionary chance, then killing kids for the emotional good of the parents should not bother us, but it does. Always, right? And that's the real problem of evil. Universal, we see the crooked line because we know there's a straight one and that points us to God. Number two, we opt for suffering. We don't just know it, but we opt for it. And that points us to God. Without God, the highest good is survival. We talked about that in week two. We talked about Darwin's doubt. And if we only have beliefs that help us survive, then survival is the greatest good. Without God in the world, without God in the picture, then all we care about is survival. And we should always act in the way that helps us, not necessarily others, but us survive the best. And so we act in ways like prom mom, and that should be fine. The problem is we don't. We don't live like that. Many of our moral values that we operate with actually oppose our survival. A young man rushes into a burning house to save those inside. A young woman risks her life to push a child out of the way of an oncoming car. We should never do things like that, but we do them all the time. We suffer for the sake of someone else. And if there's no moral code, if there's no moral lawgiver, then where does heroism come from and sacrifice and mercy and forgiveness? All of those should be unacceptable to us if we're only after our survival. But not only do we opt for those things, we applaud people that opt for those things as well. We give them medals and we award them and we make statues to honor them for their sacrifice. And there's no reason to do that outside of a moral standard. And where do we get that except from God? And so when we opt for suffering, it points us to God. Finally, when we question suffering. It points us to God. We shouldn't care what suffering means or that it means anything, but we always have this nagging question. Why? Why am I suffering? We are always after a meaning behind our suffering. And it points us to the idea that that our world is not about comfort, but it's about maybe making us into something. It's about preparing us for the place that we were really designed for. Maybe that's why we ask Why am I suffering? And that means that I am being molded and I am being shaped and I am being defined through pain and suffering so that I'm fit for the life to come, the life that I was really meant to live. And all of that points back to God. And so without God, we shouldn't know that we're suffering. We shouldn't choose to suffer at times and we shouldn't care what it means and for, that, for all of those reasons, our suffering, even our suffering, points to a creator. It shouldn't be something that takes you away from a creator. It should be something that points to the creator. And you're saying, okay, all right, fine. That's the end of the philosophical discussion, by the way. But that doesn't help me when I lose my job. All right? And so I want to get real practical in this second part of the sermon. And I just want to give you the sense that Christianity's explanation of suffering is probably the most satisfying that there is, that you'll find. It helps us with how to suffer. It helps us with how to endure. And the practical side of suffering today is that suffering should unite us 
to the God who created us. Suffering unites us at least in three ways is what I'm gonna cover today. Number one, in purpose. It unites us to God in purpose. In John chapter nine, verse three, there is a man born blind and he is brought to Jesus. And the question is asked when he is brought to Jesus, who sinned, Jesus, that this man is born blind? Because the common belief was that a particular individual sin led to suffering. Now, here's a side note. The Bible will tell us, and it will lead us to this idea that generally speaking, suffering in the world comes from sin in general, but not from necessarily from sin in particular. Let me say that again. Suffering in the world comes from sin in general, but not necessarily from sin in particular. What do I mean? Why is there suffering in the world? Well, because the world is broken. It's broken because we sinned. And all the sin in the world contributes to a broken world. So part of the reason you're suffering is because we live in a broken world brought about by sin. Probably the reason that you're having a pollen attack this week is not the result of the lie that you told last week, but it is the result of all people everywhere from the history of the world having lied. Does that make sense? That's the idea. Now, some particular sins lead directly to suffering. We can see those, you know, pretty obvious. If you speed, you're gonna suffer with a ticket. Uh, sooner or later. That's another issue. But what I'm saying is it's, it's wrong to say that all sin leads to particular suffering. But that's what they thought in Jesus' day. And so they said, Jesus, who sinned? Who sinned so that this guy was born blind? Was it his parents? Was it, was it him? And Jesus kind of gives a mic drop, drop moment. He, he said, no, it's actually, there's a third category. Well, wait a minute. That, I I didn't know there was a third category. Jesus says, yes, there's a third category. Without God, there are only two categories for suffering. There's either either anger, you can be mad at somebody else else for your your suffering, uh, i.e. his parents did it, or you can be uh, guilt-ridden and shameful about yourself, uh, i.e. he did it, and that's why he's blind. Uh, So he sinned or his parents sinned. Those are the only two options without God. You either blame somebody else or you blame yourself. Jesus says there's a third option. With God, he says it this way. It wasn't this man or his parents that sinned, but this suffering is so that the works of God might be displayed in him. That's what the NIV says. The ESV that I have in front, you have to put the so in there. It's implied. So that. Our God is a so that God, what's Jesus saying to us in this moment? He's saying your suffering is never meaningless. This man is suffering so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Any suffering you endure, any suffering you encounter, any suffering you experience in this life is so that. We serve a so that God. There's always a purpose for our suffering. It's, there's always a reason. It's just that we don't often know what that reason is, but there still is one. It's just a matter of perspective. I want you to imagine a hunter uh, walking through the forest and he's hunting deer or who knows what, uh, and he stumbles on a bear that's caught in a, in a trap. 
And so the hunter feels compassion. He wants to help free the bear. But you can understand that the bear doesn't have that idea. The bear is not going to uh, let the hunter get near him. He does not realize the hunter's intentions. And so the hunter doesn't give up. He uh, ends up shooting the bear full of drugs with a dart. And now the bear Um, sees the hunter not only as a threat, but now he's surely an enemy because he just shot me with a, you know, and I'm losing consciousness. And then in a semi-conscious state, he sees the hunter come and grab the trap. And one of the things that he has to do is press the trap tighter in order to release the spring so that he can free the bear. And now the bear has more evidence than ever that this guy is trying to inflict as much pain as possible. This guy is trying to destroy me. He's trying to kill me. And you and I know different, right? We understand that if the bear would just wait, if he would just wait a little longer, he would, he would find that the hunter was trying to free him all along. And the message for us is that God knows what he's doing. And if we wait, we will see. We're trapped like the bear. We're trapped in time. We're trapped in a limited perspective. And what God is doing in our lives may seem unfair to us, but he knows what we don't know. There is a great prayer and it's a, it's a great attitude of wisdom to take. Um, it's, it's, I share it with you. I, I learned it from Tim Keller. And here's what he says. We should pray knowing that God will answer our prayers in the same way that we would if we knew everything that he knows. We're the bear caught in the trap. He knows everything. And we have a so that God. We may not see it, but there's always a purpose for our pain. Can I give you one purpose to be on the lookout for? And I think this applies to most of us. One of the reasons, one of the things that might help you go through pain, is to understand that there are other people watching to see how you handle your suffering. They might be suspending their verdict on Jesus. They might be waiting to see if your faith really holds up, if your faith really helps you when they see you going through the ringer. And maybe somebody's watching you in that season. And maybe your suffering can help somebody else know Jesus. There's always a purpose. Sometimes we don't know what it is, but we know the one that knows. Secondly, suffering unites us to God in progress. In progress. One of the greatest biblical studies of suffering and enduring of trials has to be the story of Joseph. It's the the text in Genesis that we put in your bulletin today and that we read at the beginning of the sermon. And Joseph is an arrogant young man. He's hated by his brothers. He has 11 of them. And in their anger at him, they end up throwing him in a pit. And they go back to their father and they say that he's died. But what they really do is they sell him into a life of slavery and misery in Egypt. And so doubtless, Joseph prayed to God to help him escape all of this trial and trouble. But in all of these years, God never answers that 
prayer and he experiences years of bondage and misery. But in those years, Joseph's character is refined and he's strengthened by his trials. And eventually, if you know the end of the story, eventually he rises up and he becomes the prime minister of Egypt and he's able to save thousands of people thousands of lives. He's even able to save his own family, his own brothers, the very brothers that sold him into slavery in the beginning. And at the end of their father's life, Jacob, at the end of his life, Joseph's brothers are worried. They, they say to themselves, oh my goodness, now that dad is gone, Joseph's going to want to get even for all of those things that we did to him to cause his life of suffering. And so what they do is they wrote, write a little post-mortem note and they say, dad told uh, us to tell you that you should forgive us, signed <laughs> Jacob. And they deliver it to Joseph and he weeps, he weeps because he understands where they're coming from. He understands their guilt. And he calls his brothers in. And in one of the greater lines of all scripture, he says this, what you meant for evil. God meant for good. What you meant for evil, God meant for good. And the point of the whole story of Joseph, one of, is that if God had not allowed Joseph's years of suffering, then he never could have been such a powerful agent for salvation and change and justice and healing. And we identify with that narrative, right? Most of us in the room will freely admit that what we really needed for success in life came through difficult and painful experiences. There's a man who lost most of his eyesight after he was shot in the face uh, because of a drug deal that had gone bad. And he's, he, he said that he was an extremely selfish and cruel person, that he had always blamed his constant relational problems and his legal problems on other people. And this, the loss of his eyesight devastated him, but it also profoundly humbled him. He said this, as my physical eyes were closed, my spiritual eyes were opened. And I finally saw how I had been treating people and I changed. And now for the first time in my life, I have real friends. It was a terrible price to pay. And yet, somehow, I can say, in truth, it was worth it. Finally, I have what, life, what makes life worthwhile. Now, have you been there? Some of us have. I don't think any of us in the room would say, I hope some calamity befalls me today. And yet, the ones who have had those things happen to us in our lives, we have seen growth like we never would have seen otherwise. Joseph had lessons to learn that only prison could teach him. Only slavery could teach him. And some in this room have learned lessons that only suffering could teach. And you wouldn't trade the insight you got from that, the character that developed out of that, the strength that you gained out of that for anything else. Here's another quote by Tim Keller. He says, with time and perspective, most of us can see good reasons for at least some of the tragedy and pain that comes in life. Why couldn't it be possible that from God's vantage point, there are good reasons for all of them? Our progress is what God is after 
and our suffering unites us to God in our progress. Finally, suffering unites us to God in promise. In promise, If Joseph's story is one of the best case studies of suffering, then the story in the Bible, then the story of Job is probably the best case study for suffering in the Bible. Job is synonymous with suffering, his life and his story. He's tested uh, by Satan. God gives Satan the go-ahead to test Job, and he experiences all kinds of calamities. He was a wealthy, righteous man, but in a flash, his herds are decimated, and his servants are killed. All of his livelihood is cut off. His children are all together celebrating some some great monument event and a storm rolls through and wipes them all out at one uh, time. And if that weren't enough, then he has personal suffering. There's physical pain that he's inflicted with, with sores all over his body. And then emotional and relational pain as his friends kind of abandon God and as his wife nags at him and tells him to curse God and die. And he's dealing with all of this stuff. Most of the book is about Job's three friends giving really bad advice to Job. And they say, Job, the reason you're suffering, it's like we were talking about before, the reason you're you're suffering is because of your sin. You must have done something to cause all this, to bring all of this on yourself. And Job says, God, why? He asks the question, why suffering? And God is silent for most of the book. He doesn't show up. He's so silent that Job does begin to cast blame on this God who is so silent. But then God does show up. And the first thing he does is he rebukes Job's friends. He says, no, no, no. Job hasn't suffered for any reason in particular. He's not suffering because of some sin. And then what we expect of God in this dialogue is to finally tell us why Job is suffering. Here's God's perfect opportunity. But the thing is, God never gives Job the answer. He never does. Instead, he gives speeches. He says, Job, I'll ask the questions. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the world? Where were you when I moved the stars around? Can you do that? Can you command the animals on the earth? And he goes through a long speech of all kinds of different things. And Job gets the point very quickly and he has nothing to say. And then he finally confesses in Job 42.2. He says, I know that you can do all things. One of the things that God does in his cross-examination of Job is that he asks the same question to Job that Job has been asking of God. Why is there evil and suffering in the world? And God says, Job, why don't you answer that? Why don't you tell me why there's evil and suffering in the world? And I'll tell you what, Job, Job, if you can answer that question, then I'll acknowledge that you can save yourself and you don't need me. What'd Job say? Nothing. He couldn't say anything. And the message to Job and the message to us from God is just this, trust me. Trust me, I know more than you know. I think even if he did share with us the reason why we suffer sometimes, we probably wouldn't understand. We're the bears in the trap. We are limited in our perspective. God knows more than we know. 
Job is never told the purpose for his suffering. He's just told to trust. And in the end, he becomes a hero, not of understanding, but he becomes a hero of faith, of faith. And our lesson is the same. Here's what we know. We know enough to trust God with what we don't know. I know who God is, and I know the promises he's made, and I know the track record he has, and I know he's worthy of my trust. I know enough to trust God with what I don't know. That's the lesson of suffering from the Christian perspective. Christianity won't often provide the reason for each experience of pain, but what it does give us are deep resources to help us go through that suffering, to face it, to endure it with hope and courage rather than bitterness and despair. Because we have a God we can trust. We have a God who makes us promises. I'm gonna call the band forward and um, I just wanna give you three of the promises that God makes to us while they come forward. Number one, God promises that he controls everything. He controls everything, even the death of his son. Look it up in Acts chapter two, when we ask the question, who nailed Jesus to the cross? God raises up his hands in Acts chapter two and says, I did. I take responsibility for that. And if he can take responsibility for the crucifixion of his own son, then he will also take responsibility for any evil that we suffer. Do you have cancer? Have you been betrayed? Have you been abused? Have you been left alone? Have you suffered some kind of loss? God will raise his hand and he will say, I'm to blame for that. He controls everything. Number two, he understands everything. We have a God who came and suffered just like we suffered. Jesus has experienced the same pain as us, the same betrayal, the same loss, the same alienation, the same, at the same time as he is working for towards the purposes of suffering, we have a God who weeps when we weep. He puts his arm around us and says, I know what you're going through because I went through that pain as well. He controls everything. He understands everything. And finally, he restores everything. The final chapter has already been written. We don't really know the specifics of it. Sometimes we wish we had some more answers, right? But what we do know is we have a God who restores. We have a God who renews. We have a God who recreates. The Friday of the cross seemed like a dark day, and it was, but it wasn't the end of the story. Sunday came, and Friday's tragedy of the cross was flipped on its head, and victory and triumph came out of that. God took the greatest tragedy, the greatest suffering in the history of the world, the suffering of his own son, and he turned it on its head so that it brought victory and life. And if he can control the greatest tragedy in the history of the world in such a way to bring salvation to all people who choose Jesus, then what can he do with my little bits of suffering in my corner of the history of the world? Don't ever say that God has never done anything about suffering. Oh, he has. And he still is. And he is not done yet. Sunday's coming. Romans 8 says it this way. Paul says, I, I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing the glory that is to be revealed to us. 
For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Do you know who the sons of God are? Us, yes. There is hope. Someday is coming. And no other world gives hope like this in the middle of pain and hardship. The hope comes because we don't have a God who will just wipe out evil one day. We have a God who will use evil itself and bring about life. One of my favorite lines is from a poet, George Herbert. And it goes this way. The death used to be an executioner, but the resurrection of Jesus has made death just a gardener. What is your suffering? Your suffering is just a seed that God's going to use. He's going to bring about life and beauty and victory because of Jesus. Father, we thank you that your suffering brings presence, that we have a God who put himself on the cross. He put himself on the hook so that we could get off of the hook. And we thank you that that resurrection of Jesus after he suffered for us on our behalf, that it instills hope. It's not just a consolation for the life we never had, but it's a restoration of the life we always wanted. And so every horrible thing that happens to us, it will not only be undone and repaired, but the eventual joy that comes out of it will be even greater than we can imagine. May that give us comfort as we go through the hard parts of life that we have a God we can trust and he's working for our good. And it's in the name of the suffering servant that we pray, Jesus Christ. Amen. I'd like you to stand. We're going to sing. You come. If you have a decision.